Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining me for this podcast. One of the things that people have been inquiring into at a parliamentary level nationally is audit regulation. One aspect of audit regulation that has become rather newsworthy in various pockets of the accounting world, but it really needs to be looked at by a lot of other people too, is the tightening in the area of ethics. There's an ethical pronouncement that people in the accounting world call APES 110. That's the code of ethics. It's been tightened globally and as a result tightened domestically. One of the areas it will have an impact on is self-managed super funds. Why? Well, trustees may use the same firm at the moment to provide financial services advice as well as do the audit through mechanisms I'll be discussing with my guest today. Justin Reid is a principal in Justin Reid Consulting. He's had extensive experience in financial reporting and audit. He's Melbourne-based and he joins me today to talk about what the changes in the wording of an ethical standard can mean for people that need to access various services uh, of uh, financial advisors and auditors to comply with the law properly. Justin, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. Not a problem. Now, there are people who are listening to this who won't know you from a bar of soap, right? So, and it's useful for them to understand your background. Uh, if you, if, I, yeah. I'm not, if you, I'm not um, surprised people don't know who I am, Tom. <laughs> I think we better fix that. Um, if you had to describe your background in um, a uh, in a few moments on the on the back of an envelope, what would it look like? Oh, as you mentioned, I'm a Melbourne boy, currently locked down like the rest of Melbourne. Um, but I uh, my background is in the auditing field, so I started off as a young audit graduate in the mid '90s and spent most of my career at a, a mid-sized firm in in Melbourne. And then eventually I've progressed to becoming a consultant in the field. So I, uh, I'm a member of the Auditing and Assurance Standards Board here in Australia. And at the moment, uh, really help a lot of clients with advice and consulting on auditing standards and also the ethical standards. So, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, there's some changes to the ethical standards and I'm in the middle right now of helping firms and, and their clients sort of navigate some of these changes. So that's me in a snapshot, Tom. That's fine. Um, the if we turn to the topic we're talking about, um, which fascinates me for various reasons, given given uh, my twenty six years of looking at the profession uh, and at business uh, from different perspectives, uh, we see that the ethical standards have been revised. Um, in what respect have they been revised that impacts self-managed super funds? Where, where, where has the tightening occurred? What's happened is that the international standards of which the, uh, the Australian standards are based, so the code, uh, sort of international accounting standards, international auditing standards, they all pervade through the Australian economy or the Australian way of setting standards. And what's happened is that the international code's changed. We're, we're moving away from really a principles-based approach with, I guess, safeguards. So what 
used to happen is that an accountant or a professional would identify a situation where there might be a threat to their ethics and then they would you know put some safeguards in place to make sure that they reduced any conflict of interest what's happened now is that the and increasingly the world is becoming more regulatory and so so too has the code of ethics so the principal changes that have sort of led to the discussions we're having at the moment tom is that the independent standards internationally have moved to more of a rules-based approach under a conceptual framework but essentially rather than leaving the profession make decisions about what is or isn't an acceptable situation they've become rules-based with with strict prohibitions so we're now actually looking at prohibitions being in place and then we have to look at whether there are exceptions and so in the smsf space we're certainly talking about something that used to be an area where we might have been able to use our discretion to provide services to clients but now we're really looking at a prohibition with maybe some exceptions where those services can be provided. So that's probably the major reason why this is becoming a hot topic at the moment. And it's really starting in this SMSF space, but we've certainly got potential for this to be a wider issue than just in SMSFs. And one of the things that I, I need to also get people focused on um, as we go through the conversation is that uh, ethical standards in the audit space are actually legally backed. And, and and the way it's done is rather interesting because it's done in the auditing standards, which are then mandated in the law. It's an interesting mechanism. Um, and and do, do people readily understand that when you deal with them? Uh, no, they don't. But then again, you know, we deal with an interesting a group of people that are very into the auditing standards so it's a small group um, but we do we have an ethic, ethical code which is you know applicable to all members of the accounting profession so effectively every member of the the ipa the, the ca anz and, and the cpa are all members that are that are required to follow the code what we've done at the uh, auditing level is we've had to ensure that that apes 110 as you mentioned before the code of ethics is mandated under the auditing standards without actually having to make it legislation itself because there are other ways in which code of ethics can be applied and also what we can't have is people just not subscribing to being a member of the accounting profession so we can't work on the basis that everybody's going to be a member of those three bodies so effectively what the auditing standards do is and it's an auditing standard that's um that that actually requires all auditors whether or not they're members of the professional bodies or not to basically apply what we call the relevant ethical requirements. And then that's effectively law. And of course, 99 times out of 100, the person's a member of these three bodies and they're therefore covered by the code of ethics. But there will be a small sliver of people that aren't members of those bodies that will still be caught on the basis that the terminology is quite broad in being that it's relevant ethical requirements. Absolutely, and uh, one of the things that uh, I think that the listeners need to be aware of is that there are people who are members of faith communities who are prohibited from being members of other associations. Uh, and because they're prohibited by a faith community, um, they then uh, need to be dealt with from a regulatory standpoint as if they are members of a professional body so that the, you know, the actual requirements 
apply uniformly across the full body of auditors. That is why we have the wording that we have in the law and in the standards today. And of course, with near on 300,000 members of those three bodies, obviously we catch the significant number of accountants in the country. So um, yeah. obviously that's that's the, the positive yeah. side is that the majority of members are performing these services, yeah. Absolutely, but the only they're the the exceptions, and in fact, I had to deal with those exceptions on more than one occasion over twelve years working for professional associations, and it's always fascinating when you have that conversation with people, and how you how you have to deal with the exception, which is entirely look, it's legitimate, but you need to you need to navigate your way around that. And that's why we do we do things the way we do in the law. Now, when we talk about um, the actual um, way in which uh, the standards work, they use the term, um, and I may not get may not have this completely right, but it, it, the tasks are routine and mechanical, Justin. Yes. Yep. When, when when we deal with the area of independence and whether people can do certain things or not and regard themselves as being independent, what is a routine and mechanical task likely to be? Look, what we'll do is we'll take one step back, Tom. In relation to routine or mechanical, it's it's in aspect, it's in respect to one of the major things that an accountant does for a client, and that's actually helped them prepare their accounting records. And so what we do is, you know, if, we, if you, particularly if you're a trustee of a super fund, you know, you need help with, you know, someone setting your fund up. So you go to a financial planner and he tells you this is what you should do. You then might get some legal advice in setting up the trustees. And, and then you'll end up at your accountant who sort of helps you get the accounting organised and lets you know what the rules are in relation to auditing, uh, into investing in a super fund and all those sort of, sort of things. And then the last person you see in the tree is, is the auditor. The auditor gives you a, an audit report that gets lodged with the regular, relevant regulatory authorities. But you're constantly seeking advice from people. And what happens is the auditor is sort of that last person in the trail. And what we've had in the past is that really under the old code of ethics, a firm, your typical firm, could actually provide a lot of those services. They obviously shouldn't be providing you the legal services and they shouldn't be providing you with the financial advice. That should be from a financial planner. But ultimately, most people go to their accountant to get all sort of help for their accounting needs. And what we've got now is that under the old code of ethics and the new code of ethics, it was always considered that some of these things and some of this advice was what they call routine or mechanical, where really the firm that provides you that information could be giving you information that is pretty routine, pretty straightforward, and it's not things that are actually going to call into question the firm's ability to actually then also audit that advice. And it's a bit like going to your tax agent and then, you know, saying, I need help to get my tax return. What's a deduction? What's, what's you know, income that needs to be assessed, etc. And your accountant telling you, or your tax agent telling you all those rules and then basically helping you prepare the tax return and lodging it. It's a bit different in the audit world where we're going, look, I can't really help you too much, you know, Mr. BHP. I can't put your accounts together for you. I can't give you advice on this, that, and whatever, because I ultimately have to give people an independent opinion. I have to let your shareholders and, 
and the stock exchange and other investors know that your accounts have been properly prepared. But what we've had in the past is that there's sort of been this ability for clients to be getting assistance from all of their, um, from their accountant and all sorts of things. But as long as those things were routine or mechanical, then the firm involved could also help with the audit. Those rules are still there. So at the moment, it's things like helping a client put together entries and putting them into their um, financial statements. You know, you might be helping a client lodge tax returns. They're, they're not considered to be anything that will breach independence. You might even help the client put the financial statements together, but ultimately the client has to take responsibility for them, just like you take responsibility for your own tax return. What we've got is that we've got to be very careful under the new rules that there's actually a prohibition from providing sort of assistance to clients of any sort, unless we can show that those services are routine or mechanical. So the onus of, of um, proof has shifted away from being only of a concern when you believe you may have gone too far. It's now basically, you know, we've got to be very careful about providing help to a client unless we can actually show that that, that service is routine or mechanical. And then uh, to give um, listeners an example, one of which, one of the things that someone uh, who is an auditor or their firm might do that is routine and mechanical is actually printing up a, a pro forma version of the accounts. That doesn't yes. involve making a decision or, uh, on, um, you know, the correctness or otherwise of that data or making a, a decision on management on how they you classify those numbers. Uh, it, it's simply printing a document up that might get signed by the audit, relevant auditor and the, and the board of directors for lodgement with the regulator. Um, yeah, and there are other examples in the Code of Ethics. I mean, one of them is preparing payroll calculations. So firms can actually pay their clients' payroll as long as the information is provided by the client and, and they're simply just paying the amounts. Um, there are plenty of accounting firms that help run the books of, of small businesses. And this is the whole point of small businesses. They really don't have the ability to do all of this themselves. You know, we're really, we're a, a country that's full of small to medium entities. Um, our whole economy is driven on the back of small business. And a lot of these people just can't afford to employ their own accountants. So that's what we're here for. We're here to provide those services to those people. Sometimes that those services also need to be audited, which is where the, the issue is coming up. Now, what in terms of the audit and the way in which um, advice pans out in the SMS space, there's a clear tension. Uh, under the new rules, am I right in saying that there will be trustees that may be challenged uh, by what is now effectively you know, the law you know, from a professional yep. standpoint, yep. and that is they may need to choose between um, one firm and another um, when it comes to financial, getting some financial services advice relevant to the SMSF and then getting the audit done. Yes, it's, it's absolutely at the front of discussions at the moment. Tom, and it's all come on the back of a, an independence guide that's been released recently, a co-production between the 
the Ethical Standards Board, uh, the CA and the CPA. And, and this, this document's basically given an example of where a super fund is getting its accounting services from the same firm that also provides the audit. And again, it's not one of these black law prohibition, you know, the old term black law, it's, it's written in, in stone, but it's a, an interpretive issue in relation to how much can a firm help a trustee and then also be able to audit that fund. And we're really getting back to now a discussion between all the relevant parties so that the professional bodies, uh, the ATO, ASIC, they're all getting together and they're, they're working through the scenario of how much advice is too much, how much assistance is too much. And really the central issue from my perspective is the involvement of the trustees. You know, we've obviously got sophisticated trustees who know exactly what's going on in their super fund and they're well aware of what numbers are there in there and how those numbers are derived. And then we've probably got those trustees who really sort of abdicate all of their responsibilities or all of their accounting work to the firm and rely on the firm to completely handhold them through the whole process. And the difficulty is writing, I guess, or having rules in place that suit both the scenarios. So when we really look at the principles, we need to be looking at those concepts of how involved the trustees are in their own fund or whether they've really just given all of their responsibility over to the accounting firm. And the difficulty there is there's, there's probably no two trustees are alike and each case or each firm particularly would have to be looking at the way they provide those services. So there are certainly some firms who are looking at giving all of their audits to another firm because they feel they're too involved in the preparation of the accounts and then there are others who really have sophisticated trustees who are quite happy to um, really look after their own fund and simply have the accounting firm lodge, lodge the report for them. And this is something that may also impact on the way in which people, and I know this is not an area that we necessarily can get into, but from a consumer standpoint, it may also influence how many people choose going into a self-managed super fund uh, as opposed to an industry or retail fund, given the amount of work that is really involved in you know, managing uh, that kind of planning for retirement. It's not easy to it's not easy to do if you are unsophisticated. No, and, and really, you know, the super fund market varies greatly. I mean we've got funds that may have hundreds of millions of dollars in them down to the funds that have got a hundred thousand. Yeah. So the people that invest in these types of, of vehicles are very different and they all end up in here for different reasons. One of the consequences from my point of view, Tom, is that the, the rules, the independence code and everything else that we're looking at, it really is not written for a one-size-fits-all. I mean, ideal, ideologically, we'd love it to, but certainly unlikely to have reached the radar of the International Ethical Standards Board, the SMSF regime, when this was written. We can certainly understand, you know, with big corporate collapses where the accounting firm and the audit firm are all involved heavily with the client, when it comes down to these funds, there's going to be some unintended consequences. And you're quite right. One of them might be that trustees just look at these and say, oh, it's just all too hard. I really don't want to have my my uh, financial information handed out to another firm down the road. I just can't be bothered with this anymore. I'm going to go back to the industry fund because it all just seems too hard at the moment. Well, is... that may be one. Yeah, that, that's one consequence in, 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 in some respects. But... If we look at the situation where trustee A is um, using a firm, 
for uh, everything. They're, they're basically going with one with a lot, right? Yep. Um, how does that trustee then deal with issues? What are the issues that need to be factored into their decision-making? That is, the, the, the Code of Ethics have a consequence for the profession, but they equally have a consequence for those listening to this who have um, trustees, etc. How does it work out? Yeah, well, effectively what the Code of Ethics is saying and the interpretation so far, certainly from those that are in the know, is that firms should not be involved in auditing a fund if that fund's had accounting and bookkeeping services from the same firm. And so a client that's traditionally quite happy with the ABC firm, you know, their local firm that they've been trusting for the last 20 or 30 years to do all of their work, that firm's now no longer allowed to do the audit. And so what's going to happen is that trustee's going to have to find somebody else to, to conduct the audit. Now, at the moment, we're um, sort of, you know, there's debate about whether the firm can recommend someone else, um, whether the firm can say, hey, if you go down the road and uh, have someone else audit your fund, then uh, obviously we might better pick up some of your odds and vice versa. We can make sure that we're both doing the right thing. You know, we, we've got to be careful about those sorts of arrangements. Um, but at the end of the day, the trustees have to now go and find someone else to do the last part of their fund, and that's the audit of it. Whereas uh, at the moment, we've got a lot of firms, we're able to actually provide them the whole service, uh, as opposed to now having to find another firm to help them at the end. Are there any, uh, well, what are the steps people need to think about here? It's clear that the accounting firms need to reflect on what they do and how they do it. That's just a commercial reality. Um, in terms of people using firms, what are the are there any steps they need to be taking at the moment, Justin? Look, what's occurred to me um, when this has come up is that trustees obviously, I think, need to get better involved with their funds. And those trustees that have actually relied on a firm to really basically do a lot for them, they'll actually need to really upskill themselves and and really improve their knowledge of how their fund works. Because what's going to happen is if the fund is no longer being looked after by a firm and also audited by that same firm, they're now going to be dealing with someone else from an audit perspective. And that audit firm may well be asking different questions. They may be asking more involvement from the trustee in relation to how the fund is accounted for, etc. So I think this is going to be a good opportunity for people who might not understand exactly how their fund works. And the benefit from this will be that hopefully trustees will understand more about their fund than they have in the past. The, the downside, I guess, is probably going to be some increased costs. I think the profession's going to end up having a higher cost model on the basis that things have to be separated and sent out of the firm. Um, but there are also a lot of firms who are quite happy to do super funds at low cost. So we'll wait and see how the, how the cost argument pans out. Um, if I can be devil's advocate here for a moment, mm -hmm. or, or conveniently be, uh, what, be uncharacteristically difficult. <laughs> um, not you. Not me, no. no. Hardly. But if we, if we take a, another perspective, and that is getting trustees more involved in managing their own affairs could actually be a good thing. 
Well, it's it's in the name of the fund, isn't it, Tom? It's a self-managed super fund. So it would actually be going towards the reason that the whole fund has been put together in the first place, wouldn't it? He says facetiously. Um, I noted that. <laughs> but if we, but if we change, yeah, it, it, it's interesting, which is why I um, asked what ends up being a rhetorical question. Mm. If it is, uh, if it is a self-managed superannuation fund, and you lack the capacity to manage it yourself, then why would you be doing it in the first place? Oh, and Justin facetiously says tax, isn't it? That it's 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 a benefit to have a super fund to manage your own uh, wealth to to help you with the taxation benefits of running super funds, and ultimately the government's decision to help. The country in the future finance its own retirement. So there's plenty of reasons why we have SMSFs, uh, which uh, um, I'm um, not an expert on. but <laughs> Absolutely, and, and that's what we need to make clear. Um, yeah. um, well, Justin's uh, an expert in audit um, and financial reporting. He's not SMSF uh, or particularly uh, a guru in SMSFs because we're keeping, keeping very much to issues related to compliance and the underlying policy. Yes, and I'm not here to provide any advice either, obviously. No. But look, as far as the SMSFs are concerned, I think it's going to be a a great benefit for trustees to understand their funds further, if in fact they don't. And and it's possible that that the outcome of this is going to be that there are trustees who are more involved in their fund, given that everything isn't with the one firm. Yeah, the other thing that uh, is important to note, um, I think that uh, while you're uh, while you are a member of the audit board, you, we're having a chat in yes. your capacity as the uh, as the principal of your own consulting practice. Certainly, yes. Now, at this stage, none of these issues are, are standards driven from the auditing standards board. These are we're talking about ethical issues here and, and the application of the code of ethics. Yeah. Well, there you go. Is there anything else people need to be mindful of in this specific area that we've been talking about? Uh, Reassessments. Um, only from my perspective that a lot of the SMSF audits are done by your local firm, um, and so. They do have some major restructuring issues to look at potentially. Um, there may be some firms that decide to create an audit-only practice out of their firms. So at the moment, a lot of regional firms, particularly ones that, that are sort of I help assist, have got a you know your typical structure of accountants, and then there's tax people, and then there's auditors. It's you know there's a lot of talk at the moment, Tom, about a lot of these firms splintering, where the audit partner and the audit practice sort of goes off in their merry way, and that they're no longer part of the same business. And so there's real, you know, might some concern for me that that's a, just an unintended consequence of what we're trying to do here. Um, that you know, really, that we're having firms that may have been together for a hundred years. I know certainly one firm that's been around for a hundred years. It's, it's suddenly going to stop being able to offer all the services that it provides and and create an audit only practice. One of the big problems, or one of the big concerns I have, is that audit only practices might not be sustainable in 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 our in the smaller regional areas. I mean, it's okay for a big city practice to maybe do audit only, but it's going to be pretty difficult for some of our smaller or regional firms to suddenly have enough work to just to keep auditors busy 365 days of the year when they really don't have that work coming from the rest of the practice. 
So that's something that I think we need to be conscious of. It's an interesting and rather, again, not quite bleak note, but a concerning note to end our discussion on. And, uh, Justin, if people wanted to get in touch with you to, to talk to you about uh, what you do in your practice, what's the best uh, method of getting uh, getting in touch? Well, you can get me through LinkedIn. You'll find me pretty easily, Justin Reed REID, or you can just uh, email me at justinreedconsulting at outlook.com. Happy to help you. If you've got a small practice or a medium-sized practice, you want some advice, happy to help. Um, but again, um, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. It's just change, and change sometimes can be difficult at the start. Um, but we just need to make sure we navigate our way through that change. It, it, uh, but there are people in, in business and in accounting who've had to deal with a lot of change recently with job, keep your job seeker and other things, uh, particularly in accounting space that where people have had uh, clients um, you know, not quite sure about how the system works. So when you're looking, uh, those of you listening, if you're looking at... Uh, issues related to tax, whether it be audit, whether it be other things, the only way, the best way to deal with that is to have a discussion with people that have been uh, registered in any of those disciplines because you're more likely to get advice that is going to be ensure that you're swimming between the flags, uh, to use a, uh, to coin a phrase. Uh, Justin, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for letting me uh, chat. It's an absolute pleasure, uh, and we'll no doubt talk again fairly soon. But for the listeners out there, stay safe and look after each other.